Hey everybody, welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from our slightly unique perspective. Today, I'm super stoked because we have somebody that, while needing no introduction, I'm still going to introduce. Everybody say hi to the one and the only Rachel O'Leary. Hey, Rachel. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. Oh, always. It's awesome and it's an honor. And, you know, I... Again, I don't want to give the usual boring introduction to, you know, when did you start in the aquarium hobby and all that stuff, but you have become a fixture, you know, worldwide and on your YouTube channel, and you've inspired so many people, and it's fun to get your perspective as someone who's been in the game for so long, uh, you know, about the hobby, and, and I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, asking you a few questions and discussing some things that uh, might bring out some new inspiration for other people, and you know, I just wanted to start right in with a with a, an easy question for you. How do you stay fresh? Like you travel all over the world and the country and talk about fish almost what like every weekend it seems like. Yeah, it does seem like that sometimes. I mean, I guess for me, what keeps it fresh is that every day and every time I interact with my aquariums, I'm learning something new and I'm always thirsty for more knowledge. So. The more I do, the more inspired I get. And this has also expanded, you know, sort of outside my aquariums into more of the various types of plants that I grew in my yard as well. And I, I incorporate what I learned from those to my aquariums and vice versa. And it's just been super fun. Yeah, I noticed you've done like a lot of, of plant stuff lately. And, and it, it is funny, like how your aquarium skills translate over to that. And I think that's kind of a, an un, uh, an unheralded skill that a lot of aquarium people don't realize is we have all these crossover skills that we learn from keeping fish. Yeah, and I mean, I think even especially with planted aquariums, um, my work with terrestrial plants has, has really opened my mind a bit um, because I make all my own soils mm -hmm. for all my various uh, terrestrial plants, from the carnivorous to the cone plants to the vegetables and just some of the techniques as well that I utilize to support plants and grow plants has, has really strengthened my work in the aquariums. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned soils because that's something I've always been fascinated about with, with planted tanks too, is that uh, substrates are just a, a exploding thing. I mean, if you look in, in the, the planted aquarium hobby, which I know you're very active in, you see all kinds of new substrates coming out on the market and opinions on substrates and additives and dirted tanks and all that kind of stuff. So this probably plays right into that, I would think. Oh, yeah, very much so. I mean, just really understanding how plants grow and seeing results from trying different things. It's, it's very exciting and inspiring to get good results. Oh, yeah. And, you know, when you talk about skills, too, that's kind of something I always think about um, – when we're trying new things in the hobby. And I'm kind of wondering with your orientation and having been in so many different areas of the hobby for so long, if you had to narrow it down to like one really important skill or attribute that you think every hobbyist needs to really be successful, do you, do you have one? Have you ever thought about that in terms of just one thing? Yeah, I've thought about that a lot. I think it's patience. Oh boy, we're on um, the same page. I think that, you know, paying attention, observing, waiting for results or, you know, giving aquariums time to settle in and mature and fish to settle in and mature before you rush into stocking or changing things is of critical importance. And especially in planet aquariums where there's so many variables, mm -hmm. having patience and observing and changing one thing at a time really is an invaluable, invaluable trait to have. Yeah, and, and you know, and I think also it, it helps you in problem solving too, because when you're patient, you take a longer view, 
it's like you tend to know exactly what steps you've taken because you haven't taken that many steps and it's easier to figure out what went wrong. I mean, that's a, that's another thing I people don't think about when you think about the context of patients. Well, absolutely. I mean, if you think about all the things that can change within an aquarium from your water chemistry based, like I, I struggle with seasonal shifts of my water chemistry here because uh-huh. I have a well that can play a role. Your lighting can play a role. The nutrient load, the fish load, the substrate choice, whether it's inert or active, the health of the plants when you get them, the size of the plants when you get them, if you plant to capacity or planning to grow your plants out, if they're, you know, plants that grow from a root system, if they're plants that grow from a rhizome, all of these variables um, contribute to the overall picture of our aquariums. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, there is no cookie cutter response or a cookie cutter recipe for success within this. So really observing and paying close attention is is your best bet to find success. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you mentioned something that I think is it's interesting to me and I, because I'm not on a well system, but I'm curious, what what are your conditions out of the well? And do you do any type of preconditioning? You may have covered this in a video before. And I probably didn't see it. and I apologize. But what 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 do you what are your conditions, your, your the water conditions out of that well? Um, my TDS is usually around 95 to 100. Now, if we have a profoundly dry period of book to about 130, mm-hmm. uh, my GH is 6, my KH is 7. The pH fluctuates from about 7 to 7.4 mm-hmm. uh, seasonally, again, depending on how dry it is. Um, no nitrate or anything like that. Nice. And I don't do anything to my water um, at all. Cool. And th- and that's that's good to know. I mean, that as somebody who breeds so many varieties of fishes that you've managed to do it with just the skill, the monitoring, all those things, you don't have to do all kinds of fancy things. Right. I mean, that's kind of your, your mindset is that it's, yeah, I mean, I like to very much to keep it simple, stupid method. Yep. Um, now I do utilize active substrates to manipulate conditions. Some, I also yep. collect rainwater. I have several rainwater, um, collection systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I really, need to trigger somebody or if there's something that's particularly sensitive uh, for instance in my like tanganican tank i do have to utilize a substrate that hardens the water because my mm-hmm. water is relatively neutral um so i have to use a substrate that that makes things substantially harder in there for those fish to thrive Same as if i'm working with many live bears uh-huh. um, and that then impacts my water change schedule because if you're utilizing an active substrate to change the parameters of large volume water change can cause a pretty significant shift in the aquarium yeah so you have to be mindful of that no that makes sense and and i think that that's important is subtle moves and slow moves and and you know that what, what like if you think when you get a lot of questions, I'm sure from people asking about things like I just did, like water conditions, how you condition in water. Is there something in the hobby? I, I, this is probably a weird question, and I don't know why I'm asking it, but is there anything that really pisses you off about the hobby in general? About maybe it's it's a mindset or something we do or an attitude or have you ever this? Is there anything that really just gets you going? You know, when you hear there's it, a, there's a few things. There's the attitude that there's only one way to do things. When the reality is, as I mentioned, there's so many variables in aquariums. Mm-hmm. Um, rarely is there only one way to do things. And that attitude that your way is the only way is a great detriment for people to learn, explore, and be creative. I also really dislike the sort of elitist attitude um, that 
many folks in the organized hobby have, as well as many of the more recognized um, professionals uh-huh. within the industry. You know, yep. I feel like in order for the hobby to continue to grow and get stronger and stronger, we need to be as welcoming and free with our information as possible in order to share what has worked with us and try and help people avoid mistakes. And by being closed minded, by being elitist, by withholding what you know, you're doing a great disservice. Yeah, I, I love you for that. I mean, that is absolutely we're on the same page. And I've, I've been of that mindset forever. And coming from the reef aquarium world where that was like the attitude thing was incredible for many years. It was so detrimental and it continues to be detrimental to people. And, and you know, the thing that makes me saddest about these a lot of judgmental people, especially, you know, people that get online and they feel all that bravado is like, if somebody wants to try something a little different, maybe push the boundaries and be experimental, they get trashed by, you know, the people, the, them. And and that's sad because I think it discourages a lot of people from trying some things that might yield the next ba- breakthrough in the hobby, you know? And it, and the attitudes are bad. That's, that's, you know, problem. The other thing that really, really bothers me is when people don't take personal responsibility for their choices and they don't try and find information or answers um you know especially with a a youtube channel yes i get a lot of really 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 basic questions that a simple google search would have the answer in the first page of results so i think it's important in today's day of immediacy of information to take advantage of of this uh wealth of of Google <laughs> right. at our fingertips and, you know, do some of the work yourself. Don't be afraid to ask questions, but don't, you know, don't be lazy. Oh my God. I love that answer. Cause that's absolutely something that is one of my biggest pet peeves in the hobby is like, I will literally have people and you probably had this when you had on, on your website as well as I will have people come to my website. They'll, they'll see that I have a blog or they'll see that I have information on the things I sell. And then they'll ask like, Oh, do you sell such and such? It's like, dude, you just have to look. and, and they're, they're Or they ask you how to prep your botanicals well, when yeah. you have a frequently asked question section. You have Right. And a video by you. And a video by a certain, you know, fish person I know. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> you have to check that one out. We'll pimp that video again. But but no, I mean, and that, that's the thing that it's both alternately frustrating and it's inspiring about the hobby. It's frustrating because, oh my God, haven't people realized there's such a great resource but it's inspiring because you realize there's so many new people that maybe haven't re- maybe haven't given it some thought and realized there's a whole world out there. So, you know, it's a double-edged sword, but yes, it pisses me off too. <laughs> now, <laughs> now, here's something I was curious with you. Now, I know you you wrote that great book with Mark DeNaro that I always like, the, the Nanofish book. And yes. you've always been, when I think of Nanofish and I think of hobbyists, like, it's you, you come to mind. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure, you know, it's the same uh, with a lot of people, but... Do you think that the nanofishes have given – I mean I, I'm trying to figure out a way to frame this question. Do you think it's it's good because it's it's made aquarium aquariums more accessible to more people or do you think it's more of no, experienced people are playing with small fishes that they might have overlooked or both or what's your thinking on that? Well, I think it's sort of a double-edged sword. I think the development of all these small aquariums and the availability of the small fish has been very appealing to a much wider audience, but I think that small aquariums are exceptionally difficult to do well just because of the lack of volume. 
uh, they tend to have fluctuation parameters much more than an aquarium that has much more volume. So I yeah. think while it has gotten a lot of people to try it, I think it's probably also um, a pretty high turnover rate for people who are brand new starting with nano aquariums. Agreed. But I do believe as well that a lot of people who historically had overlooked small fish are using them much more now than they used to. And I'm very pleased to see that they're using them in large aquariums. Yes, yes, agreed. Big, big tank, large, uh, small fish is like a huge thing. Um, you know what's too what what I thought was also interesting though about small aquariums on the on the good side is that they do tend to like if you could maintain a small aquarium and do it well, those skills definitely scale up to a larger tank. You know, if you can manage a, a fluctuating ecosystem, so I guess there's some good skills you can learn. But I I think I'd rather see people start with larger tanks. That, that's my personal. Oh, absolutely. Like yeah. I mean, just that, that dilution mm-hmm. um, is much more forgiving, you know, and I, I always tell people to get the biggest tank they can fit yep. um, just because there's always so much more versatility. Agreed. You know, you can fit more of a fish in more space. Agreed. <laughs> or more types of fish. And most people who are new to the hobby have a bit of collectoritis when it comes to fish because yes. they're so excited and inspired by all the different cool species out there and they only have one aquarium, they want a few of each. If you have a bigger aquarium, you're likely to have better success with that. Exactly, exactly. And, and you know, I'm going to ask you the most cliched question because I don't know why. I, every time I talk to somebody that has a big fish room like you do, I have to ask you, is if there is one favorite, if you had to have one species, one fish to work with, I know you like shrimp, so I'm not going not gonna to include shrimp in the game, but one fish, what would you say is like the one fish everybody should try that is just the coolest fish that you just love? Do you have one? Oh, the white cloud mountain minnow. Cool. That's right. Tinnicthes albinobes, you know, they are fascinating on a lot of levels. Number one, you can have simplified equipment because they generally don't require a heater. Number two, they are critically threatened in the wild and maintained solely through the aquarium hobby, which I think is really cool. They're farmed in mass. They're very inexpensive, they're outgoing, they're beautiful, and very, very versatile to a lot of tank sizes and flows. That's a great point, too, the, the, the part about the less equipment because that more forgiving is interesting. And they're every bit as sexy as any of the fancy, you know, South American fish or Asian fish from, you know, the tropical environments. And that's, that's, like, that's a big plus. I like that. Um, and do you tend to maintain those, I know, in all sorts of – you put them in all sorts of tanks, in breeding tanks and – decorative tanks and do you um i'm going to kind of get into aquascaping a little bit do you when you aquascape for a fish like the white cloud for example do you tend to go with something do you aquascape for the fish or do you aquascape like i want to do escape and then i'll decide what fish i'm going to put in or do you, do you approach it from the fish first or the idea first i always approach it from the fish first god i love you always that's awesome um that i when I design my aquariums, it is specifically to bring out specific behaviors or breeding habits or in order to make the fish feel comfortable so that they will look their best, behave their best, and do their best. Um, I do also a lot of consultation for people who have already made scapes and want to choose a fish that's appropriate and will get those behaviors based on their scape. But that's in my cool. fish room, I always scape with the fish that's huge and that, and that's what I've always called like functional aesthetics it's like you know your your tank looks good but it's for a purpose it's designed around the needs of the fish and I think that's whether it's environmental or physical 
um, we're on the same page. I think that's amazing. Now, with regards to scaping, because I know you're you, you're doing a lot of that and you judge contests and, and, and participate and so forth. Have you seen any – I hate to use the word trends, but have you seen any like – developments, trends that, that, that are interesting to you in the aquascaping world? Because that seems to be a very constantly changing part of the, the freshwater hobby. And talk about elitist, I know there's some attitude in that area too, but there's also some really great work being done by a lot of neat people. But do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Like what's, what's cool with that? Well, I think it's really cool that there's been a bigger focus on the biotope style aquariums yeah. and really encouraging aquascapers to mimic more natural environments because not much about aquascaping is really very true to nature. Um, most of the plants are naturally found underwater all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a lot of forced perspective and they're really beautiful and it's really cool to see them done very well. But I'm pretty excited that so many scapers are taking on the challenge of, of creating a more biotope-inspired aquarium to show, you know, the tint, the black water, yep. and a more natural representation for the fish. And, you know, when you do those things, you, you end up learning a lot about the area that you're mimicking, and that goes a long way um, as well in, in providing for our creatures. Yeah, I mean, and preserving those habitats, because, uh, you know, yes. when you're aware of something, you suddenly realize how fragile it is, and you call that attention to other people. And that, that's why I like, you know, the work of people like you that you have a YouTube channel, you're showing visually all these interesting aquariums done to replicate some of the natural conditions of fishes because it calls that attention to people that may not even be fish people, people that may not have even thought of like, where do the fish come from? Oh, the fish store. Well, no, they come from somewhere in Asia or South America. And to actually see that, it maybe it encourages somebody to get out there on Google, as you had mentioned, and just do a little reading about the natural habitats and the threats they face. It's, it's a pretty exciting time that we can do that, isn't it? It's great, you know, and I find it really useful. Um, I do spend a lot of time looking up underwater footage yep. of various places where my fish are from, or even just the flora and fauna in the area, and looking at the topography and looking at the weather histograms to get an idea of the seasonal fluctuation and what may contribute to fish breeding or their coloration yep. or even the strategies that they use for feeding. You know, it's really, really fun to do. Yeah, if you're a geek. Well, that's we are geeks, and that's what we—that's what we're all about here. And that's what's so cool is I love what you said there because I, I hope it encourages. I talk about it all the time. You talk about it all the time. I hope more people do that. That actually go online and outside of the fish world, maybe check out a few Google Scholar articles or videos or whatever, and look at the surrounding area. I know when I look at those underwater videos, I'm not just looking at the fish. I'm looking at oh, what's that plant root growing into the to the water? What, how did that tree fall down there? What is is that a tree? You know what? And I think we can learn so much from that, and that's pretty exciting. And especially with like the hill stream species, I'll, I'll just yeah. mention them because if you there's tons of underwater footage available of those environments because they're often you know people people like to explore them, and you see that the that there's these huge boulders down to rubble, and that then there's a fine sandy substrate, and you see how the different size of the rocks interact, and then you'll see like then you understand better 
why the fish breed there in order to mimic that near aquarium. Like um, some of the some of the loaches and gobies will make nests underneath or between those rocks, and then the babies can crawl out across the surface of the rock to graze. And just having an understanding of, of what it looks like really can lead to much better success in our aquarium. Yeah, and that's a that's a great point. Again, the functional aesthetics aspect and and seeing how the fish live and why they live in a given area is something that like even if you're not breeding fish, it just it brings out the best behaviors. And I think that I'd love to see more of that. And I'd like to see more. I think people would have more success if they if they explore the life history of the fishes and not just oh, read the fish and on the website somewhere or whatever and go. In fact, kind of makes me wonder, like, do you think there is one? Can you pin up to maybe one or more reasons why people fail in the hobby? Have you ever thought about that? Like why you get a lot of questions from beginners and intermediate people as well. Why do people fail? Well, I think that there's some impulsivity that often comes into play with aquarium keeping for people and not understanding, um, you know, the nitrogen cycle, Yeah. you know, at its very basic level, you know, and I, I think there's a real issue with quality in the United States. So many people are, you know, basically flipping fish now yeah. um, that the fish are stressed and, you know, even in the stores when fish are imported and they go to a wholesaler and then they're purchased from the wholesaler and they're shipped to the retailer and then the retailer ships them or sells them to another person. That's a whole lot of stops on yeah. on the for the fish and they often are just really stressed. So I wish that there was a little bit more focus on conditioning fish before selling so that people got a better product that was more robust and sturdy and less likely to have issues because when fish have issues then Americans in particularly in particular like to just throw a ton of meds. Yep. Meds are designed to kill organisms and the dosages are basically figured out by, okay, what kills the fish? Dial it back a bit to kill the organism first. <laughs> right, right. And and you bring up an interesting point. Like I've often wondered and I remember from my time in the marine aquarium trade is would people pay more for properly conditioned animals and and it's funny because everybody says – this is the, the argument you hear in the, the reef world all the time. Oh, everybody says they want you know captive bred fishes. They'll pay more for it, blah, blah, blah. But, when but they it, don't. They don't. Like I talked to my friends that work at ORA and they said you know people wanted captive bred mandarin dragonets and blah, blah, blah. And you know everybody in the hobby says, yeah, it's good to have captive bred mandarin dragonets. But when it comes time to buying one and paying $59 for a fish that they can get wild caught from the Philippines for 19 it's not going to happen. People don't put their money where their mouth is and that's kind of sad too. And I see that all the time, um, especially like with dwarf cichlids, people who take the time to breed epistobromas or rams or laodicara and throw them out to a decent size or a sexable size. People don't want to pay yeah. what it is worth to do that. Um, and it's really a shame because you get a much better product when you know you can you can buy it home bread. I mean, and I think especially with shrimp, especially with the amount of disease coming yes. out of some of the, the farms, yeah. you, you know, you can spend a little more and buy a home bread product. I think you're going to get a much better result. Oh, I agree. And I think, you know, I think that again, it's a short, short term versus long term thinking that a lot of people don't engage in. And, and as somebody who like you has, has had or has a business in the hobby, you really like to see emphasis on quality, and I just I'm I'm glad there there are a lot of great importers that do that. Obviously, we both know many, and there's a lot of fish stores that do a wonderful job. But I can't help but think that I, it sounds like hearsay, but I think fish are underpriced 
Uh, do you agree with that? Oh, they Anna? are horribly yeah. underpriced. Just... And, you know, there's there's not a lot of money to be made in selling fish right now because it's, you know, the, the, the fish are just, I mean, I understand that people don't want to spend a ton of money on fish, but these are pets, right. basically, and we're responsible for their life, and they are supposed to have a pretty decent lifespan, and you know, they're thought of as disposable, which I think yes. is problematic. Yeah, it is horrible. I agree. They're like an accessory for people and it's, it's terrible. You know, I, and, and I can't help but wonder, like, as somebody who has kept so many fish and, and bred so many fish, have you thought, I mean, I know, I think I know the answer you're going to say, but um, is there one fish that you think is a great fish for people to do, uh, to try as their first egg laying fish? Uh, do you have one particular fish that people should try and maybe learn how the ins and outs of that reproduction? And I'll tell you what fish I was going to guess on, but maybe you'll tell me I'm wrong. Oh, that, that one's um, probably some sort of Danio. Okay. I was going to say white cloud because I, I figured you'd say the white well, cloud. Well, yeah, white clouds, but, but I already used them as an answer. So yeah. <laughs> oh, actually, you know which one I think is really, really great? It's Rhizius Wolverine, the oh. daisy's rice fish. Yeah. And I yeah. think they're really great because they have some really interesting behaviors where they actually carry around their eggs. So you see them carrying their eggs before they place them. Oh, cool. And it could be a pretty cool um, pretty cool learning curve. Of course, very easy to collect the eggs as you can watch where they place them they're yeah. not they're not very secretive about it a lot like killifish actually but except probably a little yes. more accessible to a lot of people that's a good one now you know that that is interesting to me because you know it, the the idea of getting more people into breeding fish i think is it goes hand in hand with the, the long-term you know success of the hobby i think the more people get their hands on captive bred or try captive breeding fish probably the longer people will stay in the hobby i would think i would hope and of course, when they do that, they want to start a fish room. You know, one tank leads to another, to another. When you started your tank, your fish room, I know you just redid it or are redoing it. But do you do you have one single best idea that you think people could use when they're starting their own fish room and they want to get real serious and get into it? I would just say really plan it out. Mine sort of grew around the room. Uh, we never really expected for me to have a fish room. It just sort of happened, <laughs> and which is why I have to redo it now because I've learned an awful lot. Um, really pay attention to the amount of working space you're giving yourself in each aquarium, like the actual access to the aquarium. Uh-huh. Make sure they're set up in a way that makes them easy to maintain, i.e. not too low to the ground. Um, think about how you're going to power the fish room. Uh, one of the best things that we did in mine is I have my own panel and then I have a timer panel. So we have boxes run around the ceiling line that are, are just for uh, lighting that are on a timer. Oh, cool. Um, so that I can help with my energy efficiency. I don't have to remember to turn on and off lights. Yes. Uh, having that schedule for the, the fish room and the plants, I think, is really important. Do you, and, do you, you have know, a, the, oh, the next favorite thing? Oops, sorry, go ahead. I was going to just real quick question. What is your daylight cycle? Do you, do you how many? What's your photo period typically? They come on at nine a.m. and they go off around three Gotcha. So about six and a half hours. Gotcha. Um, now I can turn them on whenever I want. Oh, right, I right. Flip the timer switch. Right. Um, but I do it that way because I get up in the morning. I have my coffee. I do my emails. I check all my social medias to catch up with people. Right. I'm down in the fish room at the latest by nine, and I like to come upstairs at three because that's when my kids get home. Yeah, and that's so when the lights flip off, I know it's time to get upstairs because the kids. Are and that and that's funny. You you mentioned something that uh, I will just touch on for a second. You talked about you know when the kids get home, and I know 
in addition to being probably the world's most active fish geek, you are a mother and a family person. And I think that's a thing that a lot of people need to learn is that balance with the hobby. And, and that's hard to do. And you have a husband that's very, very supportive of your of your work, isn't it? Isn't he? Um, I do. And, and do you have any, <laughs> I don't say marital tips, but do you have any tips for getting your spouse involved in, in the hobby? Uh, even if they're not interested in being the hobby per se, is there any, how do you, how do you, get bridge that gap between like your hobby and your family is there such a thing well i mean i I think with our relationship my husband's love language is very much doing stuff to show support and he also really enjoys fabrication so Mm -hmm. being able to have him help me with a lot of those um those types of jobs is a great way for us to do projects together but it's not just limited to my fish room uh we do all the renovations on house together all the yard stuff together we built a catio we work on the cars together you know right. whatever we're doing right um we just make sure that we both are active participants so that we can get the job done that's awesome because you in the end everybody has to live with the fish it's the reality of having right. aquariums it's not like a dog or a cat where you could live with it but the dog will take care of themselves the fish is going to require attention that you know not every animal does um you know, and and you also touched on, you know, social media and so forth. So I have to ask you, I mean, obviously you're pretty well known on social media on YouTube and, and you know, around the world and on, on other social media, Facebook and so forth. Do you have any thoughts about, you know, what it means? How, how do you how do you balance your, what you do on social media with, you know, doing your own YouTube work and, you know, just communicating with people in general. I know there's a lot of people ask us, they ask me, they say, you know, I'd like to do kind of what you do. I'd like to do a podcast. I'd like to do what, what tips do you have for reaching people? And I think with you, it's always about authenticity, but what, what do you, what do you feel is the real secret to having a successful community and relationship with your fans? Oh boy. You know, for, for me, I just had a real passion to educate and share um, I had something to say yep. or like a philosophy of fish keeping that was clear in my mind. Um, so it, it, it grew from that um, first with the species spotlights because I have so many fish and I right. want to be able to share it with everyone their basic needs. So I had quite, I mean, I think it was almost two years of doing weekly videos before I started to have to look around to see if there was a fish I hadn't done. <laughs> right. Um, you know, and, and it's been a while since I've done them because I haven't gotten any new fish. In. Right. Right. Um, but I guess, I guess, you know, I, I don't really know why things have gone well for me. My channel doesn't grow that fast. Um, it's moderate sized, you know, but I, I just do what I love. And some stuff does really well. And some stuff like my, my terrestrial plant stuff doesn't get crap for views, but I don't care because yeah. I love it. Exactly. And, um, it's what what I do, you know. And this channel is is me. It's not, it's not, um, you know. I'm not selling anything. I'm not, you know, trying to convince people of anything other than you know, basically be a naturalist and take good care of your stuff. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. You're just sharing something that you love, and you know, what gets you out of your comfort zone? Do you? I mean, as a as a fish person, do you do you? Is it is it trying new things or is it uh, maybe? featuring a fish on one of your videos that you've never done before what are the things that you get like okay i want to push myself a little bit are there areas of the hobby that you try to push yourself on or are you constantly doing well, that i or? think I, I mean i feel like i'm constantly pushing myself um 
trying new materials, trying trying new setups. Um, but I, I think the, the hardest thing for me, which isn't really fish related, is um, that people know so much about me now. Yeah. You know, yeah. like I feel like I'm at a great disadvantage um, when I go to events and stuff because if people know who I am but I don't know who they are, right? I am, you know, like like uh, followers. Do you think there's you know, a certain expectation? They know a lot about me. Yeah. But I feel very like it's sometimes very overwhelming because you know I feel like I can't. Uh, I, I don't have the same insight into what they're doing. No, no, but you know, but so it's kind of one-sided. It makes sense, but I like that, like on your social media, when you share stuff, like I remember that video you did. But when was it when you got that whole shipment of fish that croaked? And oh my it gosh, was like that was awful. It was horrible, but it was like I was like, you know, I feel the emotion that she is going through, and as a fish person, as a human being, you relate to that, and I think there's something very, very neat about just being real, and and I think that is the thing you above. All the other YouTube celebrities in the fish world out there, you are just so real. And I think that is – I think that's something you should be so incredibly proud of that you've just – you're like, this is who I am. I'm vulnerable. I'm this. I'm that. I'm mad. I'm pissed off today. You don't care. I think so many people spend so much time worrying about what everybody else is going to think about them. And you know, that's a, that's, a, that's a deal killer when it comes to being yourself and you do that so well. So, well, I definitely funny. have that don't give a yes, you could say it. attitude, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I know that my my style and appearance is definitely uh, not the typical look for YouTube. And even my interest in super small stuff in big aquariums was very different. So it's been nice to see um, people you know, really grasp at least my fish concepts. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the people concepts too. I mean, you know, like your, your business, I'll, I'll ask you about this because I know people ask all the time and I know that with the, your knee uh, situation, it wasn't as easy to do the business the way you were doing it before. Do you see that you're ever going to get back into the business end of the business in some way, or are you going to do some different things? I know we talked about this before, but do you have any thoughts now that you're getting the fish room back up and running and what your goals are? Well, the the plan is for the phase two of the renovation that we're actively working on now is to set up a rack of about 25 aquariums, um, like 15 gallons across from my lab counter, which is where I pack fish mm -hmm. so that I can theoretically sit down to bag or sit down to catch some of the fish because I will never be able to go back to business the way that I did it. Um, I, I just, my, my knee simply won't allow it. If right. I stand up down there and walk around for more than an hour straight, I'm shot for the rest of the day. Yeah. That's just the reality of being a 40 year old with a knee replacement. Right. Um, the reason they usually give them to older people is because they're not as active. So, you know, I'm a person now who has to take the, the elevator, not the stairs. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. It is what it is. Right. So I am trying to get back um, to at least be able to sell the fish that I'm breeding. I sincerely doubt that I will ever go back to the scale that I was doing before, which is almost 100 boxes a week. That was brutal, wasn't weekly. it? It was, it was, it was a lot, you know, and for, for very little pay. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I've, I've had to shift my focus, which is okay because it's given me more time to spend with my family. Um, my kids are teenagers now. They're not going to be here for that much longer. I'd like, I like the fact that 
I'm spending more time with them and my husband. Um, I like that I have a bit more availability to travel since I don't have such a demanding shipping schedule. Yeah. Or the risk of leaving fish that may be vulnerable from being freshly imported. Um, and I still carry a lot of like hardscape materials and do plant orders for folks that want to come to the house. I still have pretty active in-person sales. Oh, cool. Um, by appointment. That's, since it's in my home. But, that's good to know. You know, know. I, I don't know that I, I will go back to doing what I did. I, mean, I did that for almost 15 years. Right. Right. And it, it was it was hard. It is hard. I mean, I think a lot of people don't realize this small businesses and, and, and local fish stores and all these things, especially when it's a when it's a so I mean, it was basically you, right? You didn't have any assistant or other than the occasional. It was only me. Yeah. And that that is I did really all hard. the web work. I did all the communications. I did all the shipping estimates. I do all the water changes. I did all the shipping. I bought, dropped all the boxes. I got all the materials. I went and picked up my fish from the airport. Um, I, I did everything 100 percent. You know, and that's cool. We have I get a lot of questions, and I'm sure you do, from people that are aspiring. You know, they want to turn their hobby into uh, a business, and I and I've always pushed people to do that because I think it's cool to do what you love. But the real the reality though is that it's a really freaking hard lifestyle. If you're you know even if you're prepared for it, it's a lot of work, and you you just have to accept that, and you have to do it more out of love than anything else, I think. But uh, it's definitely possible to make a living, but it's definitely possible to to torture yourself to death with the hard work too. Well, and I think it's important to remember when you take something that you are really passionate about and love because it's your hobby and make it your job, it becomes exactly that. It's a job. Yep. And they don't call it work because <laughs> it's fun. Exactly. It's a four-letter word, as they say, and and, and that's true. Right. You know, I, I think that um, – as you know, Amazon has changed a lot of things, so we're seeing a lot of more people saying, ah, "I could do this, I can do this," and I think that's cool. Um, do you think that there's one thing that, as a small, as a person trying to get into the fish business in some aspect, what, is there a key thing that they should uh, should try to do? I mean, in other words, what is your what is what should be your angle for a lot of people? Is it a better product, better customer service? Uh, being more communicative? Is it a combination of things? Have you, you ever thought about that from that aspect? If you yeah, I have. Um, I really feel like customer service has become less and less important. People want to put things in a, in a shopping cart and check out. Um, and I think that is problematic, honestly, especially when dealing with live things. Yeah. I feel like there should be some sort of communication and conversation before someone can just buy something that's alive. Yes. Um, but I really think that focusing on on the quality that you are providing, making sure that what you're doing is either unique or of good quality so that your reputation is passed around as a good one. Uh, there's a lot of people that sell a lot of bad fish yeah, um, or shrimp or whatever and you know, I think that's that's really a bad problem. Yeah, I mean, it takes takes it to a sort of a dark a dark place, and 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 that's not a good thing. I mean, is there something that you wish you knew when you started the business that you know now that you're like, oh, I wish I really knew that before I got into the business, or was it? I nah, wish I would have known that I would never have given myself a paycheck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. What is the old uh, – there was an old joke by – I think it was by Steve Martin. They said, how do you become a millionaire? And he said, first, get a million dollars. It's the same way. And right. <laughs> you can't – you're not going to get rich doing this. But you might. But, you know, you're going to be you're going to be working hard for it. And uh, I think that's a good thing. Go in with eyes wide open. Um, 
you know, what right now getting back into the hobby part, obviously, is getting away from the business a little bit. Is there something right now that totally excites you? Something that's going on in the hobby that you're just like, oh, this is the coolest thing. I'm, I'm stoked. I want to try it. Or I'm just really glad I'm playing with it. And do you have anything like that right now? Um, I think I think the use of a lot of emergent plant growth yeah. is really exciting. Things like paludariums. Yeah. Um, you know, just just pushing the boundaries of the edges of the aquarium, if you will, I think yeah. is really neat. Seeing hardscape erupt out, um, there's a lot of that that I'm very excited to to play with to incorporate more of the marginals, yeah, um, we- into into the the inside world. Well, you know, it, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, learning about the habitats of the fish and the whole habitat, not just, you know, oh, the, the, the underwater life, but how the whole thing works together, the land and the fishes. And knowing that, you know, I talk about obsessively about flooded forests in South America. Those were once terrestrial habitats that seasonally flood. I mean, how cool is that? And, you know, how does that influence your aquascaping decisions, your fish decisions, you know, the plant decisions? There's so many things with paludariums. It's, it's, it's a cold, totally cool idea that has been so underappreciated for so long, don't you think? I mean, it's been there, I but do. nobody's really done much with them. There's a few people, most specifically this guy named Nick Kinzer, who's from the Planted Club down in Washington, uh-huh. who is exceptionally talented. Oh, cool. Really incredible, incredible paludariums that he's built. So I'm excited to maybe work with him in the near future. That's cool. There's a guy actually in Philly, um, and, and I'm embarrassed because I forget his real name, but I know him from Instagram. A guy named Shrimpery. Do you ever follow his stuff? Uh, he does. He's I, a, I, a, have you seen him? I'm embarrassed to say oh, I don't. I know you who you're talking look about. Look him up I don't on it. Yeah, I, I forgot his. Yeah, stuff. no, I understand. I he I see his his work. He does these like pond style. You know, when you're talking about the rice fish, that's one of his key fish. He does these sort of emergent growth pond style aquariums, and you know they're mostly nanotype things because he lives in an apartment. They are stunning, and that that's is awesome. just, yeah. I mean, that end of the hobby it is exciting because there's a totally sort of a a thing that's been around, but we're starting to express it differently with different equipment, different understanding, and I think that's neat. And that's the other question I had for you. You've been in the hobby a long time. How many years would you say it's been? Um, probably. Almost seventeen years. Okay, so as an adult, and you've seen and you've seen a lot of things change over time, right? I mean, like like the evolution of technique and ideas that are coming out, and you've also probably seen things, or have you seen things that started out as sort of uh, whatever, and now they become a big thing? I mean, have you seen anything that stands out to you that's sort of been around, but now it's just in its prime? Well, I mean, I think aquascaping in the United States has grown by leaps and bounds the past few years, really creating something that is not just a glass box on a clunky fiberboard stand. Right. Uh, really elevating the aesthetic of the aquariums or and the aquarium furniture that we're putting into our homes in in a lot of other countries. Um, aquariums and their furniture are really incorporated into the design of a home. Yeah. And it's been nice to see sort of um, an elevation of some of the product lines that are available in this country in particular and seeing that like design side really yeah. really be given more importance. Because it makes a big difference, you know, if your aquarium looks nice in your house and it looks good with your furniture, then your spouse is less likely to dislike. All <laughs> right, the spouse factor. I agree. I mean, and that and that's the thing I'm glad to see. Like for example, lighting. Like for the longest time, and I and I saw this in the reef world a lot, 
LED lighting, which has been big in the reef world for a long time and now in freshwater, they, they were great lights, but they were, they were technically perfect, but they were so butt ugly. The fixtures were just ugly. And it's like, finally, we're seeing manufacturers realize that, you know, you could put some beauty into the, to the light fixture because it has to go in somebody's house. And I think that's, that's well, huge. and the same things with like glass yeah. intake and um, discharge tubes or yep. stainless steel ones or, you know, the, the aquariums that are rimless, you know, there's, there's really a lot more attractive options now than there, there were, you know, even 10 years ago. Oh, absolutely. I think that, I think that the, um, the hobbyist is maybe a little more, I don't want to say discerning, but maybe it's a little more demanding nowadays of that sort of aesthetic thing as well as just functional. There's always going to be the fish, you know, the, the fish room person that breeds fish and they, they don't need all the fanciness. But it's nice to see that we have options for all types of people. I think that's kind of cool. Yeah, I only have one fancy tech. You know, all of mine are just your plain, ordinary you know, clunky. <laughs> well, but, but you know, you say clunky and ordinary, but some of the most beautiful aquariums I've ever seen were really just breeding tanks that you're like, oh my God, the plant growth is so cool. Or there's some aspect of it. Right. And so I, you know, beauty is so subjective and, and it's funny because I get, you know, I sell obviously aquascaping materials and botanical materials for aquascaping and people will send me pictures of their aquarium with my stuff and I'll look at it and I'll, I, I, sometimes I have to, they're very proud and, I, and I'm, I'm very grateful that people want to try stuff. But I look at it and I go, but that's really not my aesthetic taste, but that's what you love. And I think that's the beauty of aquariums right now is like, there's so many ways to express yourself aesthetically and otherwise. So it's a neat time, you know? And on that note, I think it's critically important that people remember that what matters most about their aquarium is if they like it yes because they are the one looking at it they are the one caring for it and you know again it goes back to what we were talking about earlier where there's not just one way to do things exactly exactly and and you know that gets to the hobby culture aspect of you know why we do things the way we do and is there one thing that you like a common hobby myth or practice you just love to kill if you could just say no one's allowed to ever do this again or think about this again is there something that you think is just toxic or bad besides i know we talked about attitude and stuff but is there one like practice or something that you think is just no we got to stop the inch per gallon rule <laughs> yeah right <laughs> that's a good one that's a good one. Like the, the, I mean, it's just not realistic. <laughs> right. It doesn't take into account biomass or right. feeding or anything. Well, you mean an eight-inch an eight-inch Oscar can't fit into a ten-gallon tank? I don't understand. It's only eight inches, right? Well, <laughs> and the other thing is, is what about like a one-inch Ferraris that is so torpedo-shaped that it has a quarter of the body mass of a one-inch Ember Tetra? Exactly. They have the same stocking density. So not even just, you know, the obvious fallacy of, you know, a 12-inch Oscar can't fit in a 10-gallon tank, right. but it's also the fact that you could fit, you know, four or five of the Barreras per gallon in theory, right. you know, but that the pro big problem with that rule is that I feel like it should be whatever that number is plus um, some sort of golden amount of gallons for dilution. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I think you're right on. I think, and you know, you take into account planted aquariums, they have a different nutrient export capacity than a, you know, a, an artificial, you know, a hardscape with no plants or artificial plants or whatever. There's all these little factors that we have to take into account. Yes. Not cut and dry. I mean, it's crazy. 
um, interesting stuff. So you know what I want to do now, because I think we've just talked and I want to like, I want to hit you with some hard, hardcore questions. And I, I, I jokingly call it a lightning round, but it's pathetically not that fast or anything. <laughs> so what but, you're saying is don't talk too much. No, I love it. You could talk for two hours. I don't really <laughs> care. In fact, in fact, if you just want to stay on the rest of the day while you're doing stuff, I have to pack some boxes. We'll just talk. But, but no, I'm, I'm first of all, I want to talk to you about, Oh, we have to talk about this, Rachel. I found out Rachel is like me, an unabashed, like huge fan of professional surfing, which is really funny because what's a lady from rural Pennsylvania doing becoming a surfer? And that shows you how the internet has helped. And just, you've always had an attraction to surfing, right? I mean, that's your thing. Yeah. I mean, ever since I was probably about 18 or 19, um, when it was only like one competition a year right. that would air on TV, you know, and then once, once the World Surf League, you know, had yeah. their website and their app and stuff, it's made it much easier to keep up on that. But I just, I don't know. I, I, I think I just love the water. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, a lot of, I, I especially appreciate about professional surfing is um, the absolute focus on conserving and saving yeah. the environment and their fundraising abilities and how they have this very um, naturalist mindset. Yeah, well, it's, we, we so, as surfers, we appreciate that resource. And in fact, just recently at that contest in Chopu in, in Tahiti, there was an emphasis on the protecting the coral reefs, which I think is amazing. You know, it, it gets people aware of this this type of thing. And um, it's fun. Well, and, and, you know, collecting plastic and rehabbing environments. I mean, it's really it's really pretty awesome that there's a sport that that really does something. Agreed. And, and I wish in the aquarium hobby, we would do more for that, too. I mean, I'd love to see more charity-based things to help support some of these organizations like Project Piaba, which I know you're familiar with, and some of the yes. other ones that support the local systems. That's good to see. Well, let me get into my lightning round questions now. Uh, well, on that vein, who's your favorite pro surfer right now? Right now, who's going to win the, the uh, WSL um, title this year? Oh, gosh, I have no idea because all my favorites have sort of dropped out. <laughs> right, right, everybody's <laughs> injured. All my favorites are injured this year or they're old. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I, John John Florence was yeah. my pick, but he's been out for a while with yeah. injury. Yeah, so he's not going to come back. I, I Probably, I don't know. You know, don't, don't say Felipe Toledo, I, I, or I'm gonna I'm gonna hang up. Yeah, um, I was gonna uh, say Felipe Toledo. Yeah, he'll win probably. Okay, good enough for all of you that are bored. That's that's the surfing stuff. You have to look it up. Sorry. Um, what's your favorite product right now? Favorite aquarium product that you use? Even if it's not an aquarium product, but favorite product that you're using. If you want to be diplomatic and just say, oh, you know, Saran Wrap. What is your favorite product? Polyfilter. Yeah. Um, Polybiomarine. Po- yeah. Love that product. I, I think that is really unique and especially helpful with small aquariums or new aquariums would you tell people please that it's not a mechanical filtration media that it's a chemical adsorbent media it is a chemical it adsorbs (laughs) and it absorbs so it doesn't even require actually being in the filter and what's interesting about it is it was um, developed for water treatment, but also dialysis. for kidney dialysis yeah. as a pre-scrubber. So um, what's neat about it is it changes color to show you what it's filtering out. So if you have a new aquarium and you're getting ready to add your fish and you think it's cycled, but you're working with anything um, particularly sensitive, like most specifically shrimp, if you put even a postage stamp size piece in your aquarium and let it float, it will turn the color to show you that you're starting to have a buildup of ammonia before it'll even register on your test kit. Exactly. And I think, but it's so funny and you heard it here, people, again, for the umpteenth time, it is not a, it's not a, a poly 
ester filter pad. It's poly filter. No, it's, so it's, please it's don't confuse different. It. That's polyfill. Right. This is totally polyfilter. different. Totally different. So I'm glad you like that. That's like my favorite go-to filtration product. And interestingly enough, for people that like Blackwater Aquariums, I don't know what your experience is with it, Rachel. It doesn't remove that much of the coloration. It has not. It does. No, it doesn't. I mean, it does. The poly filter does um, get brown quickly, which yeah. you know makes it less have less efficacy. But it doesn't really take out the tint. Yeah. So for those of us tint fans, that's a good thing. Um, oh, totally unrelated question. What's your favorite band in the world ever, all time? Tom Waits. Really interesting. Yep. Favorite song. Oh, gosh. Oh, now I got you. I, I can't pick just one. Got I you. can't. I'll give you the easy out. That's okay. No problem. <laughs> What's your go-to? Well, he's got an album for every mood. So <laughs> that's, that's true, right? Tough. He's one of those kind of prolific people. What? Uh, let's talk about food because most reef and, and, and freshwater people and aquarium people love food. What is your favorite go-to item, that thing that you either make or order when you go out? Like, What is your like favorite thing you like to try in every city that you speak at? seafood nice <laughs> you know, now why is it that us fish people like seafood and sushi and stuff like that it's like oh god everybody tells us oh they're your friends or are they food it's like oh shut up just whatever well they're both yeah exactly <laughs> they can be both so we get it um okay and then i guess my other question to you is if you had um one resource to recommend to people whether it's is it, it, it to learn more about the hobby is it Going to your local club, the fish store, a book. What, what, are you, what are you into? What do you think works? Well, I mean, I really, really, really enjoy going to clubs. I haven't had much time in the past few years to actually do so. I think it's a great way, you know, to get your geek on, to meet people in your area, to get um, healthy, home-raised fish, to get in a group buys. Um, and most clubs are only about $20 a year. Yeah. So it's really affordable, too, as well as regional events. Um, but I know that in a lot of areas of the country, the closest club are hours and hours away. Yeah. So that's that's not as feasible. Um, so you know, but, but, but I encourage you if you can to at least attend one event a year, just so that you you know you feel normal. I know in my life, you know, very few people that I encounter on a daily basis are into fish, and they just think right. I'm kind of the crazy fish lady. Right, right. So it's it's there's something really magical about going to a club or an event where everyone there has you know, a similar interest. To right. Right. You don't have to hide. <laughs> you can just feel it. Right. <laughs> I remember like when I go to those, those conferences and I used to, I used to speak at a lot of these Marine Aquarium conferences in North America's and like, it'd be 48 hours or 72 hours of just nonstop fish geekery. And the yes. best thing was when you got on the plane on the way home, you're like, ah, I don't have to talk about fish anymore. And then of course you get home and you're immediately homesick for all your homies there and you want to get back to talking. Yeah. So that's being a fish geek, folks. That's what it's all about. And then you are probably the world's most stoked fish person. So that's what's cool, <laughs> what you're doing. So what is your next stop? You're going to Aquatic Experience in about two weeks, right? Or three I weeks? have Aquashella this Aquashella. weekend. Okay. And then I have Aquatic Experience in two weeks. Nice. Um, and and I actually have to pull up my website. I think I'm going. <laughs> you have to consult your own website for your. I love that. That's the best. That's well, a busy. I mean, 50. I take my life one month at a time. Nice. Actually, one week at a time because if I start thinking about all the things, yeah, coming up, it gets a bit overwhelming because I do a lot of stuff. So I try yeah. to just take my life very much one week at a time for my schedule so that uh, I don't get overwhelmed. Yeah, and I can just focus on the tasks at hand. No, that's cool. And then that's, that's a good lesson too, is that, that balance of, of having to schedule yourself as a busy fish person. So that's cool. Well, gosh, we've covered a lot of different topics today, haven't we? And I'm trying to keep it exactly to an hour so I don't uh, torture <laughs> you any more than I have to. 
Um, and any parting shot, anything else you want to say to anybody? Like, you know, anybody you want to call out or anything you want to, anybody you want to compliment or anything you want to say to the world? Well, I would like to say, um, I, we touched briefly on medications, but one of my things that I feel really passionate about is, um, not over medicating and I think that a really great resource that maybe not everyone knows about is the University of Florida's aquaculture lab they have an incredible database that's free to use on disease and stuff and they also have a registry to uh, veterinarians all over all over the United States that can consult with you for your fish health and I would really encourage people you know this doesn't always necessarily mean taking your fish to the vet you can often send pictures or video to the vet uh, in order to make more educated guesses on on medications that we're utilizing with our fish that is cool what a great resource so that I mean Talk about, you know, taking the time to explore. There's something, an amazing thing you can find there. And that, that is a big problem for a lot of people, fish health. So great topic and a great, great idea. Thank you for sharing that one. My pleasure. <laughs> Your pleasure. And, and Rachel, again, thank you so much for being a guest. We're going to have to have you on again when your schedule is not as crazy. I'm going to torture you as many well, times. Well, winter time's time. usually pretty slow. So let oh, me good. Know. I'll have you on every week. I'll just bother you. for. <laughs> no. You're like, no, no, don't do that. No, but we'll, we'll talk more. We'll have some, some interesting – maybe we'll go one topic and delve into it or maybe we'll take some, uh, some questions from – uh, from the audience and so forth. So all three of the people that listen to this podcast, get your questions ready for Rachel. Now, put a call out for questions you, on my social media. Oh, too. there you go. There will get all, all the thousands of people on, on Rachel's social media. No, we have a, a really good following and people are going to be real happy to hear you and it's going to be a lot of fun. And thank you again so much for spending part of your day with us and, um, you know, travel safely, keep doing what you're doing and everybody else out there. Thank you so much for supporting us. We really appreciate the growth on, our little podcast here. It's been a lot of fun and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tin.